We're glad you're here. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks. Lord, we praise you for your loving kindness. We thank you that you purposed even before the creation of the world um, to save some, to save us, God. And so tonight, as we study, we want to reflect upon your character, Lord. We want you to instruct us by your word, by your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us, make us more like Christ, that we would bring glory to you, that we would honor you. And I just pray for myself tonight. I pray that you would help me, allow me to speak clearly, to honor your word uh, with what you would want um, us to know, to learn tonight, God. You are sovereign. We praise you uh, for your hand, your work in all things. We trust you even uh, in times that we see as good and times that we see as difficult. And so we just pray that tonight uh, you would teach us, point us to your glory. May we stand in awe of you, God, and respond in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it's a little different. <laughs> it's a little strange uh, being here uh, in my house uh, by myself, just speaking to a camera. But I have the privilege tonight of starting off the Summer of Psalms series we're doing by looking at Psalm 121. And so if you would open to that in your Bibles, we'll begin by reading that in just a minute. Um, as we look at the Psalms, we want to look at the context. We want to look at the context of the entire Old Testament. We have to understand that the Psalms were written to the Israelites. They were the covenant people of God. And the Israelites had the same God. Uh, they had the same salvation as us, even going back to Genesis 15, when Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, uh, he believed in God and it was credited credited to him as righteousness. So even from then we see that God's people are saved by faith and that they respond in obedience to what God re reveals, um, his laws, his commandments. And so Israel as a nation had certain laws that they followed, and it's a little bit different for us um, in the New Testament. Um, but we want to understand uh, the people that it was written to and understanding in the context of the Psalms, the Psalms were a very important book. God is, is very purposeful, intentional. He's perfectly wise. And so we have to ask the question, why, why do we sing these things? Why as we look at Psalm 121, why is it a song instead of just a something we read? We have to understand that God had created music uh, as a tool, as a benefit to his people. And so um, I, I want to read a quote from Athanasius. He was an early church father. He said this, for to sing the Psalms demands such a concentration of a man's whole being on them that in doing it, his usual disharmony of mind and corresponding bodily confusion is resolved just as the notes of several flutes are brought by harmony to one effect. So one of the, the powerful things about singing and singing the Psalms is that, that focus, the concentration it brings, whereas Athanasius was saying, it, it unites you, all of you together. All of you is involved in singing. Uh, singing is also an aid in memorization in having God's Word dwell richly within us, as Colossians 3 commands. Singing is also something that, in its very action, is something that the singer is identifying with the content. It is committing to it. It's not just something that you're reading, like a narrative or a law, which we're supposed to act on, but it's very internal. Singing is a very external response. These are the words I'm putting on my lips that become a declaration, an expression from me in identifying with this and committing to these things. 
And music is also an expression, a response to who God is. Um, John Calvin said this, I am in the habit of calling this book the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For not an affection will anyone find in himself, an image of which is not reflected in this manner. So he's saying, you look at the Psalms, it's, it's got all the pieces in there, all the different things that we experience within our souls. He says, all the griefs, sorrows, fears, misgivings, hopes, cares, anxieties, in short, all the disquieting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated, the Holy Spirit hath here pictured. And so it concentrates us, it refocuses us, it gives commitment and expression to these things. So we have to understand it's very important that God gave us and gave Israel the Psalms. And we look in the context of where we are in the Psalms, Psalm 121. It is the second Psalm in a group of songs that is called the Songs of Ascent. Those are Psalms 120 to 134. These were written a few by David, one by Solomon, many by anonymous authors, but they were likely gathered after the exile when the second temple was built. In the exile, the people of God gained, gained a greater appreciation for, for knowing God, for keeping His law, for realizing that the land of Israel was a unique thing and that they were set apart. And so these songs would embody the prayers of the Jewish people as they would gather three times a year. They were called songs of ascent because people would gather, they would come from all over, and they would return to Jerusalem, uh, the mountain of God, Zion. And they would gather for the Feast of Booths, for the Feast of Pentecost, and for Passover. And as they would come, as they would travel on the way, some for many, many days, they would sing these songs. And so Psalm 121 is one of those songs that they would sing. And so we understand, in, in understanding that context, that there are many things uh, that apply to us as well. As these pilgrims would journey to Jerusalem, so also we are pilgrims, we are aliens here on earth, and we are looking to a better place. So uh, there are three things specifically that we, we can identify with, with these people as they would go to Jerusalem. First was the desire of the pilgrim. If you just turn back in Psalm 120 and verse 5, it says, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Mesek, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. So in this very first psalm, Psalm 120, of the song of ascents, uh, the psalmist is lamenting that he lives in a heathen land. He lives among heathen peoples. And so the desire of the pilgrim was to leave behind the dwelling of the ungodly. And they came with longing and expectation to Jerusalem, the city of God, to the worship of God. So we share that same desire. We look to a better place, to a new Jerusalem, to the reign and the glory of Christ. Second common theme that we can understand is the pilgrims encounter danger in the journey. So as they would journey many days to Jerusalem for, from wherever they lived, uh, they would encounter many, many difficulties along the way. There were many dangers, and most of the pilgrims would travel in large group um, for protection against those dangers. There were brigands. Uh, there were robbers like those we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan, men who would lurk in the hills and wait for unsuspecting people uh, to come and then uh, kill them and take what they had. Uh, there were animals, uh, wild animals along the way. Uh, there were the elements of nature. Um, there were all the things that the pilgrims would have to endure as they traveled. We understand, specifically in the context of returning from the exile, um, Israel had, did not have its own king. In the time of David and Solomon, uh, the, the land of Israel experienced a unique uh, time where they had a king set up by God who, who was God's chosen king 
who cared for the land, who looked out for it, who desired to bring security. Um, and the Israelites, after the exile, uh, and for many centuries, millennia after, were ruled by various foreign powers. So they did not have a king who really cared, who really empathized with them. So the pilgrims understood the danger of the journey, even though they desired to see Jerusalem. And the third similarity we see is, is there's a delight in the destination. And in Psalm 122, on the other side of our Psalm 121, we see that. It says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. The pilgrims delighted in Jerusalem. They anticipated arriving, going to the house of the Lord. And we have to understand there are two big draws for the pilgrims as they came to Jerusalem. One was the draw of worship. Jerusalem was where the temple was set up, where the organized worship of God in a special and unique way was. It's where his presence dwelled. And also in Jerusalem, its other glory was the kingship, the, the king set up by God, ruling in David's line. And ultimately, this is appointed a to the Messiah, the need for the divine ruler who would deliver Israel. So those were the two glories of Jerusalem, worship and kingship. So we understand that. We can identify with this, and we understand where these people are coming from as they would sing Psalm 121. Um, we're going to read it in just a second. I want to point out a word. There's a word that's translated a couple different ways, but in the Hebrew, um, it's the word shamar, and it can be translated essentially keep. And so we see that six times in eight verses, and uh, we'll explain that going forwards. All right, so let's read Psalm 121, okay? Psalm 121, it says, The Lord, the keeper of Israel, that's key, he's our keeper. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains, from where shall my help come from? From where shall my help come, excuse me? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. So really key is that idea of the Lord as our keeper in the psalm. He is our keeper. And so we'll see in our outline, it's all about understanding who our keeper is. And when we... We want to define that word a little bit so we understand it. So this word keep in the Hebrew has three dimensions. The first is attention. So the Lord keeps or someone else could keep in the, in the sense of observing, of fulfilling a responsibility, like a watchman or a spy. In Psalm 130 verse 6, it says, My soul waits for the Lord more than the keepers for the, for the morning. That's that same word more than those who are keeping watch, who are, who are paying attention. Second dimension, after attention, that the word keep uh, encapsulates is protection. It's guarding. It's watching over. It's like a, a parent with their child. It's like a bodyguard uh, protecting his liege. In 1 Samuel twenty-six fifteen, the same word is used. David had the opportunity to kill Saul, and he did not. And he calls out to Abner, Saul's commander, he says, are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord, the king? So he was chastising Abner there. Hey, I had the opportunity to kill your king, the man who you should be keeping, the man who should be guarding. So that's another dimension of the word keep. And the third dimension of the word keep 
is the idea of preservation. It's sustaining. It's caring and tending to. There's, there's an affection almost implied there. The same word is used in Genesis chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. That's the same word, Adam keeping the garden, caring for it. It's the idea of, of the shepherds who keep the sheep. They, they give attention to them. They protect them. They preserve them. They provide what they need. And so understanding that word helps us understand uh, the context of the psalm because it's used six times in eight verses. So let's get into the text of it. Uh, the psalm we can divide into four points, two verses each. First two verses, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So we see here the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes. There again, that idea of expectation. What is he looking to? He's looking to the mountains, specifically the mountains of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built in a way where it's surrounded and it's on top of hills. It's a strategic place. It's a fortified place. It's the place of the Lord, the city of God. So the psalmist is lifting up his eyes to the mountains. Yes, from where shall my help come? He's not asking because he does not know. He's asking because he knows exactly. And so he is speaking it to himself. As he travels on this pilgrim journey, he knows where his help comes from. He's anticipating, I will go through different times. I will need guidance, protection, provision, but I have a helper. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Similar words, similar uh, phrasing is used in Psalm 123. He says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned of the he in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. So lifting up your eyes, there's an idea of expectation, of longing, of requiring aid and assistance. But there is someone who will meet your needs. That is the Lord. The Lord there, that is the Lord's covenant name. We see it first revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And he is the maker of heaven and earth. And we see in scripture, God desires us to know who he is. He makes his credentials abundantly clear. If you look at the end of the book of Job, after Job goes through many trials and much suffering, in chapters 38 to 41, God confronts him and he lays out his credentials before Job and says, look at my creation. Look at all the things that bow to me that I control. Nothing is outside my grasp. And he chides Job for questioning, for not trusting him. So we see here the, psalm is not take, the psalmist is not questioning, but he's coming with humility. He's coming with assurance. He knows his help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It is good for us to be reminded how little control we have over things. Man devises so many ways to make our world safer, and that's a good thing. But amidst all the things we construct, all the things we study and we begin to understand, we still realize that God's creation is far more incredible and far more powerful than anything that we can wrap our minds around. And so as we look at that, that is a reflection, that is, that is a reminder pointing to who God is, His immense power. Psalm 115 says, May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And in verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. 
Job's response in Job 42, after the Lord lays out his credentials, he answers and says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so the psalmist understands who his God is, and he lays it out for us in the following verses. And it's so vital for us to understand who our God is. Jeremiah 9, the Lord speaks out and says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me. God desires that we know and understand him. And as we see in the psalm, the identity, the understanding of our keeper brings us peace. It changes the way we look at everything. And so, as we reflect on those first verses, we have to ask, where do I expect my help to come from? Am I anticipating there will be things I need? Do I make a habit of relying on the Lord, who is the maker of heaven and earth, who in all his power has made himself available to care for my needs, and is there to listen and to provide even before I ask? So do we come with that posture of humility as we see the identity of my keeper? You can call that the first point for the first two verses. We see the identity of my keeper. He is creator. He is the creator. So we understand who he is. Psalm 18.6 says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. So our keeper is listening. If we look at verses 3 and 4, we see the infallibility of my keeper. Infallibility is the unchanging nature, the unwavering character. It's the vigilance of our keeper. In the first two verses, we see that he is creator. And in verses 3 and 4, we see that he is a watcher. He sees everything. Nothing gets by him. Verses 3 and 4 say, He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So we see similar language all throughout Scripture. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 26, For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Psalm 37 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. So when it says, he will not allow your foot to slip, it's, not, it's saying, he will not allow you to stagger, to stumble. He will not allow your foot to be swept out from under you, and you to be carried away. Recently, my family and I have had the opportunity to go to the beach and enjoy that as a family. And so in going to the beach, my daughter is a fearless child. And she loves to be in the waves. She loves to be um, right in the ocean. And as a father, I have to be very watchful. I have to be her keeper, really, because it's easy for her to get swept away. This particular beach we were going to, it's a very steep slope into the water, which means that as the waves come up, in one moment, you can be standing on just a bare sand, no water. And moments later, the water can come in so quickly and so aggressively that my daughter can be almost up to her neck in just a mere matter of moments. And so with that pull, with that riptide, with the rush of water, she would absolutely be swept away, except that I would be there to watch her and to grab her, to keep her foot from slipping. And so that's the same idea here. It's not that you will never experience difficulty. But you will not be swept away because the Lord is your keeper. He's watching and he never sleeps. He never slumbers. There's nothing that distracts the Lord from watching over us. 
Uh, he has no drowsiness. He does not get tired. He, he misses nothing. And so we understand God sees everything. And for believers, that is a great source of comfort. It brings peace to me because I know no matter what I'm going through, no matter what it feels like, God still sees and God still holds me so that my foot will not slip. For the unbeliever, it can be a source of fear because the unbeliever understands God sees everything. There's nothing that is outside of his sight, nothing that he will not bring to judgment. He does not slumber. He does not sleep. In 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, Elijah is confronting the prophets, the false prophets of Baal, uh, the false Canaanite god. And so he is trying to, to show that their god is false, is fake, has no power. And so the prophets, the priests of Baal are calling out, they're crying out, trying to get their god to, to bring down fire to consume a sacrifice. And Elijah mocks them. He calls out, okay, well, maybe, maybe you need to cry louder. Maybe you need to do some different things to get his attention. Maybe he's sleeping. Um, maybe he's away from his phone right now. Just try a little harder. But he's pointing out there just the foolishness of believing in a false God. The true God must see everything. He is everywhere. He controls everything. He misses nothing. The all-powerful creator God cannot tire or be distracted from his constant care for his people. And so as we look at this, the question for us is, am I trusting in that care of the Lord, in his unending watchfulness? Um, if I am in a situation that tempts me to be anxious, do I trust in him? Do I realize that if I'm going through a painful time, the Lord is not sleeping. He has not changed. He has not stopped. He is still there. And further for us as believers, we have to consider that the Lord sees all we do all the time. Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 11 verse 4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. So the Lord is watching. He's watching. He's vigilant. He's looking for those who are devoted to Him. And for those He loves, He will not allow them to be carried away. He will not allow them to be swept off their feet. They will not be taken away. So we have to understand the infallibility there of our Keeper. He is our Watcher, the Vigilant One. And I just want to take a moment um, to sing. I hope that you will sing with me. I know it's odd and difficult uh, because we are far away from each other. We're in different homes. But it's important for us to realize that it's a psalm. And in all scripture, we want to respond. And singing is a natural and God-given way that we can respond. So we are going to sing, Oh, Worship the King. And what I've done is I've got the lyrics, and I'm actually going to paste them, all right? I'm going to paste them in the comments here. So they're all there, all right? And so whether you're watching this live or you come through later, um, you will be able to see that, all right, and sing along. So we're going to sing, Oh, Worship the King, a classic hymn. Let's sing together. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing His wonderful love. Our shield and defender, 
the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. Sing the Creator. O tell of His might and sing of His grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space. His chariots of wrath, the deep thunderclouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. Frail children of dust, and feeble as frail, in thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our Maker, Defender, Redeemer, and Friend. Sing to our Creator, our Watcher. All hail to the King, in splendor enthroned, glad praises we bring, thy wonders make known. Returning victorious, great conqueror of sin, King Jesus, all-glorious, our victory will win. So we see in that song a lot of the same language, and language that we'll see in the coming verses as well. The Lord is always watching. He, he cares for us in His mighty power through His grace, um, even though we are frail, you know. He knows that we are made of dust. He knows that everything we are relies upon Him for sustenance. And so as we looked at in the first two verses, we have the identity of our Keeper. He's our Creator. He's the Creator. We see His credentials laid out. Verses 3 and 4, we see the infallibility of our Keeper. He's the Watcher, ever vigilant. Nothing gets by Him. We move to verses 5 and 6, and we see the imminence of my keeper, the imminence. He is close. He's ever-present. He is never far and always available to aid. So we could see him as creator, verses 1 and 2. We could see him as watcher, verses 3 and 4. We could see him as our protector, our protector. Let's read verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. As I read that, I realize I've forgotten to point out all the places where he says keep so far. So depending on your version, um, he has said it a few times already. In verse 3, he says, he who keeps you will not slumber. That verb, whatever, however it's translated, is that same word, keep. The keep. Uh, the keeper is attentive. He is protective. And he is... Uh, he. Uh, forgot my word, preserves us. He's the preserver. So he who keeps you, that's number one, will not slumber. In verse four, behold, he who keeps Israel, same word, will neither slumber nor sleep. So he keeps us. And it's not just about us. It's for all his people. God keeps all. Nothing gets by him. Just because he's focused on one does not mean his attention is drawn from another. And moving to verse five, it says, the Lord is your keeper. Same word. He's our keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. So that word shade is the idea of a shadow, 
uh, in imagery of, of a shelter. Um, and your right hand is the place that you turn to. It's that which you rely on. Um, if you have someone seated at your right hand, that's the person that you look to. It's a, it's a place of great privilege because they have power. They have trust. They have authority that you have given them. Uh, you turn to them. You rely upon them. If, if you're going to fall or stumble, you would reach out, if you're right-handed, to, to your right hand, to whatever is there to catch you. So that right hand is the symbol of strength and support. Saying the Lord is your shade. It's not just He makes you comfortable. No, He's your protection. He is your shelter. The imagery is used in Psalm 91 uh, of that, how a, a mother bird covers its chicks. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow, there's that similar word, of the Almighty, that protection. He will cover you, this is verse 4 of Psalm 91, with His pinions, and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. We just sang that, some of that same imagery, shield, uh, in, the, in O Worship the King. So He is our shelter, our shield. He is the one who protects us perpetually, continually. And it says, The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The psalmist is not saying here, the Lord's going to protect you uh, from sunburn. But he's saying, the Lord protects you from all kinds of fears, from all kinds of troubles, all kinds of things which would seek to harm you. That word smite there in, in the New American Standard is to literally strike a blow. It can be fatal, it can be not, but this idea of striking so hard that you throw someone to the ground, that you overpower them, that you essentially destroy them. Interestingly, it's the same word that's used in Isaiah 53, verse 4, speaking of Christ. It says, for context, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten, that's that same word, struck down of God and afflicted. So Christ was struck down by God Himself. And, God, and the Psalmist is saying here, Nothing will smite you. Nothing will strike you down. Nothing will overpower you. Because the Lord is your keeper. He is the one who protects you. Back in Psalm 91, it explains it a little more. In verse 5 and 6, it says, You will not be afraid of the terror by night, or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. So the imagery of day or night is just talking about the different kinds of difficulties, of dangers that we fear. And this is very relevant as we think in the context of pilgrims traveling to Zion, to Jerusalem. We can understand in the daytime, the imagery is there are some fears that are more tangible, some things that are more visible as we see all the violence that's been happening um, in our cities and around our country. That's very tangible. It's very visible. That's a terror, a danger that we would see by day. And on the flip side, something metaphorically in, in the night is something more nebulous, something that's not quite as tangible, but still, still fearful, still something you're not sure when it's going to strike or when it will take hold. Uh, in Psalm 91, it talked about the pestilence that stalks in darkness. So sickness, cancer, these are the kind of things. It says, these things will not smite you they will not overpower you. They will not destroy you. And that does not mean that God will protect you and keep you impervious from any sort of harm. Because we understand in His sovereignty that it is His design for us 
His people to go through trials and to go through some suffering. But again, the Lord is our keeper. He will not allow our, our feet to slip. He will not allow us to be swept away, overpowered. You, you will not be smitten so much that you are crushed and beyond repair. And so uh, that brings to mind uh, what Paul says in Romans 8. It's familiar. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 35 of Romans 8, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives a big list of things. We're experiencing trials. In the, in the Roman Empire, Christians suffered terrible, heinous things, things that we can hardly imagine how terrible. But Paul says, In all these we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. So we have that victory. We have that victory. And we understand now that Christ has come, the fullness of that message. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to the, to the bringing of that victory. They looked forward to the presentation of the Messiah, uh, of Christ. And now we understand that it is because of Christ, because of faith in Christ, in what He has done, in paying for our sin, that we are secure, that we have been reconciled to God, that we have become part of the covenant people of God, so that God protects us. He keeps us. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. So as we think about these things, we understand that God is the one who protects us. He protects us in all things, big and small. The question for us to, to reflect upon is, are we humbled by that? Are we humbled that I am powerless to protect myself? I think in America, probably most of us have a hard time really grasping that and really saying, no, I, I truly have no power. Because we understand we have ways that we try to protect ourselves. And those are not necessarily bad. In your home, you have a security system. Uh, there are many ways that you protect yourselves and your family. If you need protection from the sun, you put on sunscreen. But in the big scheme of things, we understand that it is God who orchestrates all things. That He is the one who keeps us from calamity. And so are we humbled by that? Are we looking to God, whether you're in a trial now or not? Are you looking to Him, that He is the one who will bring you through your life? And He will bring you home. Through Him, through Christ, you will overwhelmingly conquer. 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So in reading this, we want to reflect on the fact that we are secure. That nothing on earth can overcome us and take us away from the love of Christ. Nothing can tear us from the eternal hope that we have. Israel too looked to that hope. They looked to the, the coming of Messiah, to the restoration of Israel, and the eternal kingdom where Christ, where Messiah, reigns over His people, all His people, those who He has chosen, those He loves. And so do we see God as our protector? Are we clinging to Him? Do we turn to Him? Or, in the easy times, are we thoughtless? Are we only mindful of God if we are experiencing something difficult, something painful in the moment? But the psalmist is going into this as he makes his pilgrim journey. He knows already. He is saying to himself, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Lord will sustain you. He will protect you. So we want to understand that, the structure, as we go through. And we'll make it as we wrap up to the last verses. 
Verses 7 and 8, we see the infinitude of our keeper. We see the, the everlasting nature. His, his keeping of us does not end. It's not something that's just physical and, and temporal here on earth. He is our preserver. Verse 7, the Lord will protect you from all evil. That word protect, same word, keep. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep, same your word. He will keep your soul. And in verse 8, the Lord will guard, same word, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. So, more than just protection during this life, during trials, during things that would overcome us, that would break us down, the psalmist knows that the Lord's care, His keeping, preserves us for eternity. The Lord will protect you from all evil. It's not just evil. It's not just the harm that we were talking about before that would seek to, to smite us in the day or the night when we can see it coming or when it comes upon us by surprise. Evil, that word, it, it combines a wicked deed with all its consequences. It's the opposite of obedience, of peace and harmony. So the Lord will protect you from all evil deeds. He will protect you from evil consequences. Ultimately, the psalmist knows that the Lord will keep him from the eternal consequences of his sin. He knows that. He says he will keep your soul. He will not just keep your life. He will not just watch over you in this world. He will keep your soul forever. Philippians chapter 1 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So the psalmist understands here that once uh, a, a person who believes in God, once uh, a believer, once one who is saved and claimed by God, nothing can take that away. You cannot lose your salvation. And we see that taught here even in the Old Testament. Um, John 10 verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says, May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. So we see the harmony of the Bible, the consistency of its teaching, the fact that you cannot lose your salvation that the Lord is the one who saves you. He has elected you, as Ephesians chapter 1 talks about, even before the creation of the world. That is still taught in the Old Testament, that God keeps His people forever. He will guard you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forever. He keeps your soul. And so we want to look at this, and we want to reflect on the character of our God. As we read Scripture, we understand Scripture is for me. It is for my good. It is for my holiness. Uh, it is for my knowledge. The scripture is not about me. It does tell me things about myself. And it does change things about myself by the grace of God. But who I am, my identity, and everything I need to know is wrapped up in who God is. And who He has revealed Himself to be in His Word. It is sufficient. It is all we need. And so as we look at Psalm 121, it's not just about giving myself assurance even though this is a great psalm of comfort for us as pilgrims in this world. This is a reminder of the character 
of God, so that we would praise Him, so that we would cry out to Him, that we would understand that He's the Creator, that He has the power, that He has the authority, He has the kingship. We understand that He is the Watcher, He's infallible, nothing escapes His sight, and nothing can surprise Him. You cannot, I cannot be swept away as by an ocean wave without Him being aware, without Him protecting and guiding us. We understand the Lord is a protector to His people. He keeps us. He is imminent and close, always at hand, like a shepherd is to the sheep, to drive off uh, the wild animals and to protect them, to provide what they need, care for them. We understand that the Lord is a preserver, that His care is not for a season, that His care is not just for this life, but it is aimed towards an eternal dwelling, that He keeps us from this time forth and forever. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in. Whatever you do, wherever you go, you're leaving home, you're returning, the beginning of your life to the very end, God keeps you. And so, as we dwell upon this psalm, we want to examine ourselves in response. We want to reflect and ask, does my life display the character of God in the way that I respond, in the way that I, I speak of Him to others? Does it display His character in the way that I handle difficult situations? It's so convicting for us uh, to realize that so often we handle things so poorly. We in America, we are so blessed. Uh, we have freedoms to do so many things uh, that we don't know how to handle real trials. Often we're not prepared for them. Uh, we can be, grow complacent. But we need to cling to our God. We need to trust in Him. We need to rely upon Him. The question uh, for us to, to dwell on is, do I have any doubt or anxiety? Is there anything I'm wrestling with? If I am in Christ, I need have no doubt because everything rests on what God has accomplished in Christ as we see Scripture lays out. The Lord is the keeper once we are His, nothing can take us from His hand. Nothing can take our souls. Nothing can claim us. Do I have anxiety when I have uh, a checkup for my health coming? If I have an uncertain situation in my job, um, if I'm looking to move and I don't know where I'm going to move, if I have someone in my family, my friends, or, or another acquaintance, that is difficult to deal with, that you could say even uh, seeks to humiliate and persecute you? Am I anxious about these things? As we read, we're reminded we have no reason to be. And truly, anxiety is a sin because it lowers, it cheapens uh, the identity of who God is. It, it displays to others that my God is really not that great. I don't believe He's that great. Because I believe there are some things outside of His control. I believe there are some things that could overcome me, that could take me away. The Lord will keep us from all evil, from its consequences. In Christ, we have that forgiveness of sin, and we have freedom to live in, it with, in heaven with Him forever. And so, in understanding the context, too, we talked about the pilgrimage of the psalmist, of the Israelites. Do we see ourselves as pilgrims? We are all headed for New Jerusalem. We are all headed for heaven, 
for the reign of Christ, for the kingdom of God. As we see in Scripture, it is an incredible place. It is a perfect and beautiful place, a place where there is no sin, there is no sorrow. Um, it is not some place of dullness. Um, it is not some place uh, of of cheapness. It is not something we get there and oh, we're we're just servants forever, or uh, you know, we just we just sing together in heaven and that's about it. No, it is a place of great joy where we get to know our God better. We we can have such joy in studying this text, uh, but we will have greater joy when we see Him face to face. So even now, are we delighting in our ultimate destination? Even though now you may face the dangers of the journey. First Peter one says. You, you believers, are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So this affects our mindset. This affects our attitude as we go in. We have a keeper. We have a perfect keeper, an eternal one, an ever vigilant one. And I would ask you, um, as we end, is the Lord your keeper? Is the Lord your Savior? Do you know Him? Not just know about Him, but do you know Him personally? Have you submitted to Him in His sovereignty? Have you clung to Christ? Have you trusted in Christ that only in Him can your sins be dealt with? The psalmist is here displaying a blessed, a beautiful trust and rest in God, but that only comes by the power of God, by the work of God, in Him atoning for our sins, in dealing with them, the sins that are so great we could not take care of them ourselves because of the infinite offense to our God. So I would ask you as I ask and examine myself, is the Lord my keeper? Do I have this assurance, this trust, this faith? And as we look at the psalm, do you worship Him? Do I worship Him as your Creator? Do I honor Him? And fear Him as my watcher? Do I trust in Him as my protector? And do I cling to Him as my preserver, always looking to an eternal kingdom, to the new Jerusalem? Um, I wanted to just sing as we end. We're going to sing across the lands. And so um, I'll paste that uh, in the comments. And as we sing, uh, we want to dwell. We want to take joy in the character of our God. It's beautiful how many of the songs we sing, written by wise people who study the Word. It combines all the language of the Old Testament with that, with the New, and wraps it up with a nice bow. So let's sing Across the Lands. You're the Word of God, the Father, from before the world began. Every star and every planet has been fashioned by your hand. All creation holds together by the power of your voice. Let the skies declare your glory. Let the land and seas rejoice. You're the author of creation. You're the Lord of every man. And your cry of love rings out across the land. 
Yet you left the gaze of angels Came to seek and save the lost And exchange the joy of heaven For the anguish of a cross With the prayer you fed the hungry With the word you stilled the sea Yet how silently you suffer that the guilty may go free. You're the author of creation. You're the Lord of every man. And your cry of love rings out across the land. With a shout you rose victorious, resting victory from the grave. And ascended into heaven, leading captives in your way. Now ye stand before the Father, interceding for your own. From each tribe and tongue and nation, you are leading sinners home. You're the author of creation. You're the Lord of every man, and your cry of love rings out across the land. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your love and kindness to us. Lord, we affirm uh, your holy nature, the fact that you can abide no sin. And we stand in awe of the fact that you purposed and you brought about our salvation, our redemption, God by what Christ has done. We praise you for that. We thank you. We thank you for this psalm, which is a precious reminder of our security in you, of the tender care that you keep us in, God. We thank you truly that you have an, a loving kindness that is everlasting. Lord, we want to respond in thankfulness. We want to respond by declaring your praise and your worth to those around us. Lord, may we see ourselves as pilgrims. May we see ourselves as journeying to a better place, and that any dangers that we encounter along the way uh, pale in comparison to the joy that we will experience in your presence, God. We ask that you bring us safely home soon, as you have promised. In your name we pray. Amen.